You're listening to a C3 Victory podcast. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au. visiting with us this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, We hope that you're having a wonderful morning. Hope that you've been welcomed by a few people. We believe that church should be the most welcoming place on the face of the planet. And I want to say thank you. Welcome. If no one said that to you yet, let this be your welcome to our service this morning. And uh, if this is your first week with us, you've come at a great time. Uh, We are journeying through a a letter uh, in the Bible. Uh, The Bible's not a single book. It's lots of books, letters, poetry, all put together that all tell us a love story about God, uh, that He loves humanity and He loves humanity so much that He would give His only Son so that we might know that God is real and have relationship with Him. That is what this is about. This is not a book of law. It's not a book of legislation. It's not a book of, of, of all, all about how we should live our life. Ultimately, this is a book about how much God loves humanity. Uh, and we're going to open up this morning and we're going to read about that. Uh, we're actually in the middle of a, a, a journey through one of the first letters that was written to uh, the new group of believers. is one of the first groups of believers that, bel- that, that, that kind of were raised up Jewish. They were a part of the Jewish community. And then Jesus walked on earth and he's like, hey guys, um, the Messiah that has been promised about. Um, my life satisfies over 600 prophecies about who the Messiah is going to be. I am a shining light to everything that is in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, just so you're aware, it's all about me. Um, And he doesn't say that explicitly, but as you read through the New Testament, it's like that becomes clearer and clearer. And and so we've got this group that decide to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And and so Jesus's half-brother, his name is James, he pens this letter to that community, a community that has just decided to completely change the very basis of their belief system on the sole reality that that some of them either walked with Jesus himself, saw him and his miracles, or or they knew they were one person away from that group. They would have heard about the miracles, word of mouth. Did you see what Jesus did the other day? Do you remember Jesus? Like a few years ago, he did this. And they were told those stories, and it was those stories that he did these miracles. He died, and then he was raised again. And it says so many people saw this raised Jesus the resurrected Jesus, and and so many people saw it, and the stories spread, and people believed. And James, uh, who was Jesus' half-brother, growing up with Jesus, as you can imagine, you know, Jesus is like, look, I'm kind of God, and James is like, you're my brother, you're not God, you're closer to the devil, Um, because that's what siblings are like, right? Who has siblings? Thank you for your response this morning, I appreciate it. Right, no sibling grows up and thinks their sibling is God, um, and so James James is very similar. He's a human being, and uh, and so he grows up and he's like, you're not God. He starts mocking Jesus at one point, um, but obviously something happens to James along the way because he writes this letter, encouraging this new community that have decided to 
to build their entire life from this point on, on the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. And, and, and you know what? That community includes us now. That community includes us. If you're here this morning and you, you have at some point, whether in your heart or externally decided, you are going to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and that he did come to earth, die on a cross, and get raised again. If you're like, I believe that, you're a part of the community that has decided to rebuild their entire life on that belief. That's who we are. We are that community. And so just as James writes a letter into that community, it, it, it translates directly into us as a community today. Uh, so we've been in that now for a few weeks, and we're going to continue in that this morning. Um, hands up if you have been here for all weeks of the 10-week journey so far. Who's on track? Fantastic. You guys are amazing. Thank you. I, I commend you for that. Um, it is, I'm going, to, I'm going to put out a challenge. There's no prize on the end of this. I'm working in my family right now to not make everything a competition, right? At the moment, getting dressed is a competition. Eating breakfast is a competition. And if one of my children isn't winning, well, then their response is, well, it doesn't matter. But it matters if they're winning, but not if they're not, right? Like, so I'm working at making everything not a competition. So we're not going to make this a competition. But if you're like an intrinsically motivated person, uh, why don't you challenge yourself to, to maybe be here for the remainder of the 10-week journey? Imagine what God might want to say to you if you commit to doing the remainder of the book of James. If you just made that commitment in your life, I believe that God honors commitment made uh, toward Him and toward building our life on, on Him and, and, and who He is. But just, just saying, you know what, we're not going to miss the remainder of the 10-week journey. We're going to buy in, we're going to be here, and we're going to let God speak to us out of this letter. I, I want to encourage you, I want to set that as a challenge before you this morning. Like I said, there's no prize, it's not a competition, it's a challenge, there's a big difference, no medals. All right. So we are picking up the letter of James halfway through uh, what we have labeled the second chapter, right? When James wrote this letter, there's no chapters, there's no verses, okay? Uh, there's just writing, it's just a letter, uh, like when you wrote those, those long love letters to your high school crush. Um, kids don't do that anymore, I feel like that's a lost art, right? Like it's a sneaky Snapchat now. Uh, and I feel like that's, that, that lacks the, the poetic, romantic beauty of, of the long letter and the subtle pass as the teacher's not looking. But hands up if you were a part of the generation that actually wrote handwritten little love letters to your high school crush. Come on. I feel like I topped out at about 16 pages at one point. I'm a words guy. Don't blame me, all right? They've, the person probably never read it, okay? It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Rach is not a words person, so she does not get that because I try to love her the way she likes to be loved. There's some marriage advice for you right there. Um, if, if your spouse is not a words of affirmation person, don't write them lots of letters. It's not going to tick their box. Go and do the dishes. Acts of service might be their thing, okay? Don't love someone the way you want to be loved. Love them the way they want to be loved. Our life should be from the outside toward, not expecting them to come to us, right? We go first. We love how they want to be loved before we expect them to love us the way we want to be loved, all right? That, that, that's how marriage flourishes when our focus is the other person, not our own selfish satisfaction. Um, we're going to save that for the marriage course later in the year, but... 
there's, that one was for free. It's what, one thing I've learned over 10 years of marriage. Don't approach your marriage for yourself. Fill yourself with Jesus so you can overflow into your marriage with no expectation of it coming back. And you do that, and it just does. It just does. It's, it's amazing what creating a fertile environment in your marriage, that's a bad use of terminology for marriage, unless, you know, go for it. Be fruitful and multiply. Amen? Stop at three. That's my advice. Stop at six, Jim said. That's, that's even better. Yeah, I, I agree. I felt graced for three and no more. Faith and deeds. This is a title that someone far more scholarly than me has placed on this section of Scripture. Faith and deeds. Starting in verse 14, if you don't have a Bible, we've got it on the screen for you, which is great. You can follow along. It says, what good is it, my brother and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. You foolish person. Just remember, this is James, not me. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous? for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Can we pray for a moment before we get into this? Because uh, I, I need the Holy Spirit to speak on that this morning. Father, I thank you that you're here, and I thank you that this is your word, that you know how we need to hear it for where we're at, Father. God, I pray that you would speak this morning really clearly through me. I pray everyone right now would have their hearts open to hear what you want to say to them. Lord, we thank you that you helped the Jets to draw last night and we continue to believe for resurrection in that space. Uh, and Father, on a more serious note, we continue to lift up Pastor Keith and Janet uh, and, and we're thankful that they are uh, about to board a plane to come home. Uh, we know that that is a step towards um, processing everything that they've been through recently, but we know that it's not the end of that process. And so, Lord, we just continue to pray that you would lead them. Thank you for the healing that Pastor Keith has had. And we just pray that as they, they step foot back in Australia, they'd have such a sense of being home, being supported, being surrounded, being uplifted, and they would be, be able to continue processing uh, grief uh, and loss in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. I'm pumped. The Jets did not lose. 
This is a big step forward, guys. This is a celebration moment. Um, we, we are on the way up. It's, it's good. You know, Pastor Mel did a fantastic job preaching last week. Um, if you were here, you would, you would have known how well she articulated the passage where James just, just gets us about like favoritism and preferential treatment. And it was, it was a little bit like, oh, and just, you know, when you get like squirmy in your seat because like God's kind of like trying to just hold you down so you don't miss anything that's being said and you're trying to like squirm out from underneath God like my children try to do when I try to hold them in place. It was like that. It was one of those great messages where the, the reality of Scripture being um, able to cut between soul and spirit comes in a reality. And sometimes we need to allow the Word of God to adjust us. Uh, we need to allow the Word of God to, to encourage us to being a better version of who we are or a more accurate expression of our new creation than what we're comfortable living. Sometimes we can get way too comfortable that we disregard conviction. And we need to be very careful that we don't do that. Because when we, when we get too comfortable that we begin to disregard conviction, we begin to get complacent and then, and then we begin to rotate around the same issues in our life because we don't want to hear what God says about them, okay? We, we don't like them, but we also don't want to hear what God says about them. And it puts us into a cycle just like the Israelites who walked around the wilderness for 40 years Okay, because, because they didn't want to hear what God was saying about who they really were. They were convinced they were grasshoppers and they couldn't take the promised land even though God said they could. And so we need to be careful that we don't disregard when Scripture adjusts us. It's always an adjustment in love. If it comes in condemnation, that's not God. There is now no condemnation. Okay, but it should, it should sound like, hey, that's not who you are. You're, you're actually better than that. You're a new creation in Christ. You can do that. You can love that person. That is what conviction sounds like. It sounds like an encouragement forward in, in, into a greater expression of who you are in Christ. Conviction should thrust you back towards righteousness, not remind you that you're not. That's condemnation. And I want to encourage you this morning that as we unpack this scripture, if it starts to get a little squirmy for you, just go with it. Okay, just go with it. God is, is trying to thrust you into a greater expression of who he has created you to be. So here we go. I don't know if you are like me. I went on a lot of uh, like kind of youth camp things growing up. One in particular that I went on was a cross-country skiing camp, okay? Um, and it, it was awesome. We, we, would, we would go down and we would stay in like these, these super um, like rough, rugged, kind of accommodation and we would we would ski right out if you've ever been down a kind of parachute you would know there's all the lift area uh, we didn't go there we we skied all the way out like past onto the onto what they call the, the main range um, and it was amazing it was adventurous and exciting and we did all sorts of things like we we uh, one of the guys we were with he broke his ankle while we were out there and and so we put him on this like you know fold out shovel thing and we strapped his leg to the the handle of the shovel, and we're skiing him out, and, and, and it was an amazing time. Yeah, oh, come on. Oh, the, the skiing was great. He didn't enjoy it quite so much. But something that we would do at that camp all the time is, you know, you'd, you'd do a skit night, right? Does anyone remember skit nights on camps? No one. Awesome. I'm on my own. There we go. There we go. See, see how helpful it is for me when you respond. I don't feel like my story is going to be completely irrelevant to you. But we used to do these skit nights, and it was like every time 
there was a range of like 10 skits and no one could come up with anything new. And so every year it was like a, a kind of like first dibs on that skit was the awesome one last year. So we're going to do that one, right? And one of the ones that was a classic that this happened every year was the, the pretend uh, shadow like operation behind the sheet. Has anyone experienced that skit before, right? Like you set up a sheet and you have a big like couple of torches and then behind the sheet you've got someone laying on a table and you pretend you're a doctor and the sh- they're watching the shadow show and you're like pulling out sausages that you stole from the, 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 the place where they're trying to cook dinner and they're wondering where the sausages are and you're pretending that you're pulling all in and then like, oh, oh, there's a ski. Where did the ski come from inside of the person? I don't know, right? That was how we did it, just trying to pull random stuff out and make it funny. But this story came to mind as I'm reading this passage, this idea of what we see versus what is really going on. And, and the thing was that, that this, this whole skit was a shadow. It, was, it, was a, it, was, it, it demonstrated kind of what was going on, but, but we, had, we had set up a performance behind to present something on the sheet in front of us. And the skit indicates that there is real action going on behind the screen. But when we begin to read James, what we realize is actually our actions are the thing that's seen. In the skit, it's the shadow that's seen. But, but when we read James, it's, it's more like it's our faith that is the thing that is behind the screen and it's our actions that people are viewing which is the opposite to what we had in the skit. We have the actions behind the screen and people see the shadow. Whereas really what James is saying is maybe our actions are more of a a shadow of the true faith that is behind. And and I'm going to address something right from the word go. Because if we have people here and you've been in church a long time and you read that passage of James, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, that sure sounds like a contradiction to the things that Paul wrote. Can I get an amen? Right? Like Paul writes in Ephesians, just, just so we're on the same page. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Hang on a second, because James wrote, um, you see a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. That's awkward. Um, And if we're not careful, we find a tension in Scripture like that, and, 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 and we, as humanity, we, we go, oh, that's a contradiction. And if we're not careful, we place contradictions in Scripture that aren't there. And what contradictions do is they work at the back of your mind to undermine your belief in Scripture being truth. And so what we need to do is that when we find tension in Scripture, we have to see that tension is actually an invitation. Tension is never a contradiction. Tension is an invitation. Can I tell you that your work, walk with God is a constant invitation to discover more about Him? And sometimes He will create tension in your life so you lean into it because there's something He wants to teach you about Himself that you will only discover if you lean into the tension that is created in your world. And so when we get to this tension where it's like James, Paul, Paul, James, what's going on? It's not a contradiction, it's a tension we're supposed to explore. And we're supposed to ask questions when we read Scripture. We're supposed to say, gee, that sounds like this. God, what is going on? Show me. I, I, I am so aware that I may not get through this. We may be doing this, this passage of Scripture for two weeks. 
I used to hate theology. I used to hate theology. Then I started my master's and I read, I read what some very wise person said, that theology is faith-seeking understanding. And it totally changed my perspective on theology. I used to think theologians were these, these academic, separate people that didn't understand real life and therefore didn't understand real faith. And all they were doing was nitpicking what I didn't want to have to deal with because it was too detailed. And I was happy with just a, a bit of a blind faith. Okay. Now, there's nothing wrong with blind faith, except that it doesn't have a lot of substance to it. I would rather have bold faith based on an exploration of the truth that I didn't understand rather than a blind faith that doesn't hold up when something in my life challenges what, what I've held to, okay? And, and, and so this, this person really helped me because I was like, actually, if I take that definition of theology, when I come across attention in Scripture, I realize what it is, is it's an invitation for me to understand my own faith. It's actually just an invitation for me to understand the God I say I believe in, right? Like I have a faith in God, but, but for all of us, a question should come immediately after that. Well, who is God and what is he like? It's answering those questions that, that mature us far more than doing what we think we should. It's having, it's having the authenticity of faith to lean in and go, well, actually, I can't answer that, but I want to. And going to scripture and going, I say I believe in God, but who is God? And so we go to Scripture to answer those questions. And we find these tensions, and, and something within that tension is going to teach us something about God. And the reality is, just to very quickly address this big issue here, the reality is that both these authors are coming at things from different settings with different theological orientations and different intents. They are not speaking to the same people. They are not speaking at the same time and they are not speaking in response to the same questions. And so if no other exploration than a subtle exploration into context tells us we shouldn't put these two people in the same conversation. Except what we do is we bring them into the same conversation and we come with a contradiction. But when we realize they're answering two separate questions, we, we, we give them space to be attention and bring a completeness to the picture rather than a contradiction. You see, here we go. Can we go quickly? Is that all right? Can you lean forward? I've got to move. The idea that faith and works are separate paths to salvation is, is actually what they are both addressing. They are both addressing that faith and works are not separate, and they're not separate paths to being saved. Paul is saying it's not by the works alone that you are saved. Actually, it's faith in Christ that is the doorway to salvation. James is trying to describe what that faith, when it's real, looks like. Okay? They are not arguing different points. Paul is telling you what the foundation is. James is describing the foundation. Paul is telling you it's Jesus. Have faith in him. James is saying, when you have that faith, let me tell you what it looks like. Let me explain what it looks like when it's real. Okay, and so we shouldn't put them in contradiction. Paul, yeah, I've said that. Here we go. This, this is how we know that Paul and James are not in contradiction because in Romans, Paul says this. For we maintain, in other words, I stand on what I've said, that a person is justified by faith 
apart from the works, right? They are not both equal paths to salvation. You cannot work your way into heaven. The law showed us that. We cannot in and of our own selves be good enough to achieve the status at which God set for access in a relationship with Him and therefore eternity with Him. We cannot on our own act that well. We cannot act our way into heaven, which is what Paul is saying. He is saying only by faith in Christ can we do that. However, and this is where Paul comes into alignment with James because he begins to explain the faith he's talking about. He says that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, right? Sorry, that's me explaining we can't act our way. Paul's agreeing with me. It's very good. The issue in this passage for James, though, is not faith or works, but faith without works against faith with works, okay? Moving on. Galatians, this is where I wanted to get to. Galatians. It says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, remember this is Paul writing, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, move on, Nate, has any value. The only thing that counts is faith. What type of faith? Expressing itself through love. So it's a faith that works. So now Paul is is coming into the same kind of explanation context that James is writing in where he begins to explain the faith he said is the only way to Christ. The only way to, to relationship with God is faith in Christ. But now Paul is saying, hey, that faith, if it's real, it's going to express itself. And you know how it's going to express itself? It's going to express itself through acts of love and mercy and grace, which is actually exactly what James is saying. He is saying, listen, if your faith doesn't express itself, it's not real. That's not real faith. Because real faith doesn't sit to the side when there's someone else is in trouble. Because if we have real faith, that real faith is at work in us, producing work through us, and it should be seen and expressed in works of love and grace and mercy. And so actually they're saying the same thing. They're saying the same thing, except we have to dig a little bit to find that. And what we come out of it with is an understanding a little bit more about the faith and what it actually should be that we say we have. That is what we should do when we come across tension in Scripture. We shouldn't go, oh, they're saying different things. No, we should go, God, what are you trying to teach me about my faith in this tension? Now, moving on. We've got to remember James here is writing into a Jewish community. He is writing into a community that has just left obedience to the law is my way to God. And they have just started to go, well, I'm actually going to believe that, that Jesus is my way to God now. That, that it's not by the law, it's, it's by what Jesus has done. And, and they, don't, they don't really know what that looks like. We, they don't have the New Testament. They're, they're, they're just believing And James is writing to them for the first time. They're coming out of this works approach where they keep the law and they'll be good enough, right? But, But James is speaking about what the real faith in Jesus should look like because they're not really sure. They're not, they're living in a context that's telling them all kinds of other things. And they're like, well, what should, like, we're believing in Jesus. What is that now? Not only that, but they are living in a culturally unjust society. Firstly, because of the Roman authority that they're living under, but, but actually more so because they're living under a religious elitist culture. The Jewish community with the pharisaical kind of leadership was, a, was an in, 
excuse me, it was an unjust culture that they lived in. James, multiple occasions, and we've already talked about this, multiple occasions addresses this sense of injustice that they're living in. Remember when we talked about the fact that our anger doesn't solve injustice, right? That's actually not God's way to solve injustice, getting angry at it. And I told you all I have issues with road rage, right? It's, it, that's the context we've got to read this from. They are, that we're still, James is still talking about living in a context of injustice where the rich oppress the poor and the marginalized. And, and that's why we get the example we do of, hey, you say you have faith, but here comes someone without food. Here comes someone without clothing, and yet you do nothing. And it's into this context. Okay, here we go. So James is, is speaking into discussions and questions that sound like this. People are sort of saying, hey, well, well, one of you has faith and one has works, but both are equally acceptable ways of living out the covenant that God has with Israel. And, and what James is saying is, is a resounding no to both those discussions. They are, not, they are not equal. He is trying to unpack for this new community what the new approach to a relationship with God should look like. He is trying to give context to the new faith they say they have. And what he does is he, he addresses three types of faith. He addresses three types of faith. Um, and I want to go through these very quickly. The first one that James addresses is, I'm going to label it, and this will appease all of our uh, English-loving people because we're going to have some great alliteration this morning, a forced faith. This is the first one James addresses, a forced faith. A forced faith works, is a works solely hoping that as I work, I'll believe. That as I work, I'll have faith, right? It, this, is, this is better defined as the should crowd. They are driven by the should. I should do that. I should do that. That's the right thing to do. That, like, I've got to do that. I'm obligated here. I've got, they are driven by the should. And they are hoping that actually, if they do enough should, it'll become real on the inside. They're actually unsure of what they believe. And so because they're unsure of what they believe, they do what they should. In, in, in a today's cultural context, we might, we might say that this is something close to moralism. Driven by the should, the, 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 the loud majority describes what the, the right expression of right looks like. The, the, they define the should. What is good and right has no basis because it's either defined by the masses and the majority, right? The, 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 the truth has not embedded itself so that it becomes worked out. It's worked hoping that I'll feel like I come into alignment with some belief system. It's an outside-in approach. Often what, what happens is that this is an unsustainable type of faith because ultimately the fuel source is disconnected. You are giving out because you should, not because it's an overflow. And the truth is that as Christians, as believers, we can, we can slowly slide into this place where we focus just subtly on, on the external and, well, I should do this and I should do that. And, and, and sometimes habits are great, but, but often what we do is, is we set things up as habits and we lose the fact that that habit was begun in an overflow out of our relationship with Jesus and our focus has slipped to maintaining the habit, not maintaining the relationship. 
And so what happens is should becomes tiresome. Should becomes bitterness. And eventually we, we get annoyed at the church and we get angry at what it stands for because actually we've lost the relationship with the life source underneath all of, all of what should flow out of that. And all we're doing is the external presenting like we still have a living faith, but, but we're not sure where that's gone because we focus so long on the external that we don't, we don't actually know what a living faith feels like on the inside. And we're no longer doing it out of overflow. We're doing it out of obligation. And we can slip there so, so easily. But, but I, I see this so often in those, those in our society who, who, who perhaps grew up in a Christian family learned the way they should act, but somewhere along the line never never grasped. And I, I talk to these people all the time. I've been through about seven hairdressers in my, the, the salon that I visit. Um, they, uh, I don't think it's me. Um, like they have babies or they go overseas or, or whatever. But it is crazy how many conversations I have where it's like um, my, my Friday afternoon is my haircut afternoon and then I, I, I go to my salon, I get a little like, beverage and put my feet up and it's my little relaxing time and but but Friday afternoon is always a great conversation for well what are you what, what are you doing on the weekend right and um you know it's that's a pretty easy answer because I do the same thing most Sundays uh, so it's like well Saturday's family day you know we kind of like try to boundary that so we have some quality family time but you know on Sunday going to church I'm, I'm speaking it's going to be awesome oh I I used to go to church when I was younger the amount of times that's the response. The amount of times where it's like, oh, yeah, I remember. I, like my mom used to take me to Sunday school when I'm younger, when I was younger. And I'm like, wow, we have, we have a generation that grew up learning what it should look like, but never connecting with where it came from. And ultimately, they're living a fake faith. Sorry, a, a forced faith. The second one is a factual faith. Uh, sorry, fake faith. Well, oh, getting all of my... My language confused this morning. A fake faith. A fake faith is what scholars describe James is most attacking in, in this scripture. And, and, and they would call it a creedal faith. Who thinks fake faith that sounds way better? A creedal faith. They say that the faith that they say they have faith, but it's empty in how it's experienced. So this is the one that 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 presents like a, like the, uh, well, I'm, I'm I've got it all together. I've got it all together. You don't. This is, this is the, the type of fake faith that was the pharisaical faith, the pharisaical faith. This is what James is really digging down into here. He's like, listen, you say you have faith, but there's no evidence. There's no works, right? We got, we got a forced faith that they're like, they're, they're so driven by the should that they've lost the life source. These people say they have the life source, but nothing's flowing out of it. Nothing's flowing out of it. Scripture describes it like it should be a river, a pure river flowing out, that, that stuff should be growing along the side of our life as this river is flowing. But these people are claiming they've got this faith, this epic relationship with God. But you want to know what? It's not seen anywhere. It's not seen anywhere. And James is saying, hey, you know what? That faith, that faith is actually a dead faith. That faith is not a faith that's saving you. That because there's no evidence of the reality of the, the fact that, that is not, that's not a living faith, it's the living faith that saves because Jesus is the source of life. It's our faith, it's got to be a living faith when it's really honestly connected with Him. And the Pharisees, you know what they had? They had a pious, presented, well, we know God. It's this creedal faith. I know God. I believe there's a God. But there's nothing flowing out of that. 
not changing my life. It's not changing me. It's not changing my mindsets. It's not changing my thought patterns. It's not changing my perception on people. It's not changing how I respond to people. It's doing nothing in me. It's just a great little tack onto my life that makes me feel great about myself. This is the faith. Yeah, I just said that. We could describe this as the universal person who claims faith but has no works. James is concerned with this disparity because it was demonstrated so significantly in the prejudicial, prejudicial behavior of the Messianic community that he is speaking into. There you go. That was quoted out of a commentary. You can tell the language difference. He says that the false piety, the false claims and the false religion of those who have faith but do not have works, are palpable in this letter. They say things that sound pious and do nothing. What distinguishes this faith from the faith James is saying that you should have is actually expressed in the contrast of two verbs that James uses. Right? He uses claim to have and have. Claimed, it's a subtle difference, but what he's saying is you claim to have something you don't. You claim to have a living relationship with Jesus, but you actually don't have it. There is a difference between having that and knowing you have that and it being real in your life and someone who's over here claiming it and, and it's evident by their life that it's not real. It's not living. It's dead. It might have died a long time ago because now there's a smell around your life uh, and, and people can tell. Fake faith produces no fruit. It's interesting because this is actually echoed, this same, this same response to let's not, be, let's not be pious, let's not be pharisaical in our faith. The same response is echoed in John's writing when he says to this, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples. How? How are people going to know our faith is real? Because we say we have faith? No, because we love one another. Because it's seen, it's experienced. It's, it's the overflow into the physical world that demonstrates the faith we claim we have is an actual, real, living, authentic thing. Scrolling down, I want to land here. James is trying to communicate what the faith should look like. And just to keep my alliteration going, James, James wants to encourage us to have a functional faith. A functional faith. Not that just works and just faith are at, at odds. No, James is saying faith in Jesus when it's real functions. It's living. It, 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 it has an, it, it, you can't contain it. It changes you. It shapes you. When, when, when your faith moves from attack onto your life to, to and, and this is a conscious decision time and time again in our life where we need to move it from Jesus is tacked onto my life to Jesus defines my life. Jesus now changes my life. He is the center of how I approach life. I used to think about life like this, but he's now at the center. And so now I change the very framework 
about how I view life, uh, interpret life, act towards life. I, over here, I thought life was about chase, chasing, chasing money. But over here, when Christ is at the center, I realize that any wealth I get is an opportunity for generosity, right? When, when Christ moves from an addition to my life to the center of it, it cannot help but change every aspect of how I think, act, perceive, and respond to my life. When it's real, it's functional. It's authentic. You know, we live in a, a, a cultural context today that craves authenticity. I want to ask you this morning, how, how do they know it's real? Because we say it? Or because when they come into contact with us, they experience it? Not because we should, but because it's real. We have got to give ourselves the freedom. We have got to take the burden of should off so that what we actually do is real. I think sometimes we live caught between all three of these as Christians. We, we live knowing we should show our faith, but we're in a season where we're really just struggling to believe, we're, we're struggling to connect. And so what we do is we present our faith. People can tell that that's not authentic. Or, you know, somehow we, we tell ourselves that the little that is, isn't enough. I should be doing more. Well, why don't you just do what is actually out of the overflow and trust that God is able to work with that? Trust that when when we worry about our faith being real and us being connected to the source properly, there's going to be a byproduct. I shared with our leaders the other night at, at, at our leadership gathering, um, if you're interested in being in leadership in this, this community, I'd love for you to talk to me. But we talked about the river in Ezekiel. And it's awesome, right? There's these incredible things that come out of it in Ezekiel 47. There's fruit and fish and life changes and transformations and resurrections and all this stuff happening. But the premise is, is the guy that's walking with Ezekiel says, just focus on the river. Look at the detail of the river. Sometimes I think we need to be reminded not to focus on the should and the action, but if we focus on Jesus and, and He is living alive in us and that is real and that is flowing we can't help but respond with love and mercy and grace we can't help but be conduits of that because it is what is flowing out of us but when we shift to a place where we're so worried about what is what, what people are experiencing we're not tending to the river that is within us and I want to encourage you this morning that you, you may have walked in here and you're like Got to put on the show again. <laughs> Got to pretend. Well, we don't use those words. We just give ourselves a little pep talk to, like, hey, put a smile on your face this morning. Or maybe, maybe you're, you, you're kind of being a bit honest with yourself this morning. You're like, I feel like I, I've actually lost that real connection with Jesus quite a long time ago. I've been living a should. I've been living a presented. I've been living a well. I was raised in church and this is how you live. So I'm just being obedient to the how I should. But there's nothing living 
in your heart. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to respond to Jesus. He's here. and It takes a moment. It takes a moment just, just to reconnect with Him for real. Just to acknowledge actually really where we're at, where you're at. It's about honesty. It's about authenticity. We, we don't need to have it all together. We don't need to have it all together. We need to come to Him who does. We don't need to have joy all the time in and of ourselves. We we connect to the one who does. And what happens when the faith we say we have is real and living, the actions, they, they come naturally. There's suddenly a desire where there wasn't. There's suddenly an overflow. My response is suddenly way more merciful, way more loving than it would have been on my own. I suddenly don't respond like that. I, it's different. Not because I'm trying, but actually because I'm surrendering actually because I'm being honest with God about where I'm at. So can I get everyone just to stand for a second? Thanks for joining us for the C3 Victory Podcast. We would love to see you at one of our services. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au or check us out on Facebook or Instagram.